This episode is brought to you by Okendo. Over 5,000 of Shopify's fastest growing retailers trust Okendo to capture high impact reviews, showcase customer experiences, and drive conversions. Stay tuned for a special offer for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. It's Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you real, honest, and unfiltered interviews with some of the most innovative founders and CEOs from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 121 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green, and today I spoke with Shane Heath, the founder and CEO of Mudwater. Mudwater, spelled M-U-D slash W-T-R, is a coffee alternative company on a mission to heal the mind through their daytime and evening beverages designed to provide natural energy and relaxation. In this episode, Shane shares with us his journey from experience a psychedelic trip as a 14-year-old to starting his first company, Ishbowl, to moving to Silicon Valley, to taking a leave of absence to Bombay, where he was able to reconnect with his creativity and began questioning his caffeine addiction to coffee. He talks about the difference between lantern versus spotlight consciousness, how the business grew to over 50 million in revenue since 2018, and why he allows microdosing at work. Thank you so much for tuning into the show today. If you like what you're hearing, don't forget to click subscribe, follow us on Spotify, or leave us an awesome review. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hey, Shane. Thanks so much for joining the show today. How are you doing? Hey, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to hear your story, mostly because we met. I don't know if you remember. I met you when you were first launching. I know I think you started in 2018, but I believe it was 2019 when we met at the Founder Made Discovery Show in L.A., Okay. Yeah, that's a funny story, actually. <laughs> Jump into that. But, you guys uh, were uh, pretty scrappy at that time. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was Extreme like, I don't know scrappy. if they're going to make it. They're like really hanging on by a shoestring here. Um, <laughs> we were just getting started. Product. I mean, yeah. Yeah. It was, that was actually a funny story because, I mean, we can get into the, the founder story. I think we will in a little bit. Yeah. But at that point in time, I had, we had no money. Like yeah, I was, I think that I was tell. actually in 2018. Um, and, and I'm pretty sure I got an email invite to the event and I was just like, yeah, cool. That sounds fun. I'll like, sign me up or whatever. Didn't realize that that was kind of like a formal contractual agreement to actually attend and, and pay for a booth. It's like 10 grand or something to be having a booth. Yeah. It, I think it was like, five to seven at the time yeah. yeah it was like their first one I think in LA yeah I was like living off of literally like credit cards um I had a credit card funding the business I was buying product I was buying like inventory on Amazon mixing it together in a commercial kitchen like it was bootstrap like straight up startup and um and the event's coming up and they're like hey Shane like we haven't received a payment for the booth and I'm like hey I don't I don't think this is actually gonna, like, I'd love to attend next year. I don't think it's going to work out for us this year. And they're like, well, you are like, you're going to have to pay for the booth either way, basically. <gasps> right. It's like, sorry, legal is going to be on like, your ass. Like, if you don't. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It was like, well, I mean, it's either you pay and come or like, it's going to collections basically. And oh I was like, God. okay, um, <laughs> cool. We don't have anything <laughs> to set up a booth with. Yeah, you guys had like no signage. There was like nothing. It was like the most bare bones. Like I no, it was everything in the booth was items out of my bedroom. Like I brought in a, I mean they're like de- I I don't have a that bad of a bedroom. I have like decent interior design going on. But I brought, right. like, this cool, you have a design background. I would expect yeah, that. I brought like plants from my bedroom. I brought like this cool nightstand and turned it into the bar and 
it it wasn't that bad and we had a line like all day so it was pretty cool but it was it was extremely scrappy and um and stressful because it like it like bankrupt the company <laughs> in like month five um but it ended up being a, a pretty amazing experience for us we i met uh investors that ended up investing in the company met connections that i'm still connected to today and yeah, it's a good example of kind of like, you know, people always say, say no to everything. Like if it's not a hell yeah, it's a no, like focus, focus, focus. And I really do believe in, in a lot of that, but there is some like risk you need to take some like swings you need to take and you don't really know what's going to happen. And the ROI isn't necessarily trackable, but putting ourselves out there early on, it was, it was an amazing learning experience both from managing contracts to uh, setting up booths and everything. So it was fun. But uh, yeah, nice to meet you again. <laughs> I know. I mean, it's been so long. I've been super excited for this interview because you guys have made such incredible progress since that time I met you with this ridiculous booth. I mean, it's like so funny. I love that I like knew, met you at that time and saw the product and kind of saw everything. And then boom, it feels like time flew and you guys are massively successful. So I'm excited to dive in to hear kind of what's been going on, how you did it, how you got to where you are. Um, but let's start with where you're from. I know you're in Venice right now, but where'd you grow up? What was childhood like? Yeah, I grew up in Santa Cruz, which is a town just south of San Francisco, a uh, surf town, family there, parents, grandparents, cousins, aunts, uncles, kind of like everybody born and raised there. So amazing childhood. I think it's a beautiful place to grow up got into surfing at a young age. It's a slow town. So by the time I got to the age of going to college, I was like, get me out of here. Santa Cruz has an amazing school, but like no locals actually go to UCSC. So yeah, I graduated from high school, went to San Diego State, actually. Wanted to stay near the beach and studied art and design, San Diego State. Did you have any like, do you, or do you have any memories of being entrepreneurial as a kid at all? 100%. Yeah. So um, my first business actually, it's not on LinkedIn, but I was, uh, I think I was like 12 or 13 and I started a car detailing business called Shane Shines. That's a pretty um, cool name. Pretty <laughs> sparkly <Shines>. name. <laughs> got some sparkle. And, yeah. And it. I didn't have a huge total addressable market. It was basically just my cul-de-sac, not really low customer acquisition costs, but a decent ROI for my age, I'd say. Right. You might be getting some tools here or there free from mom and dad, you know, the, the margins are <laughs> yeah. great as a kid. They were getting free car washes. But yeah, shortly after that, I, I started like a little t-shirt company. I, I, I got into art at a pretty young age. When I was in elementary school, one of my best friends, his mom was an artist. And it's a pretty interesting thing to think about. Like, I, I think if you don't get exposed to that till later on in life, you go, you kind of have this gap of thinking art is just something you do in class. Like it's like arts and crafts. It's kind of like the fun class or whatever. But to see, to see an older person, you know, like when you're a young kid, it's parents are like, you're like, whoa, they're, they're like a different breed, right? Like you feel like they have all the answers. And then I just remember, and, and she tells me to this day that she would be in her studio and she'd turn around and I'd be there watching and just like mesmerized by this older person spending their time painting. You're like, you do arts and crafts too? Oh my gosh. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Still? My favorite class. <laughs> right. <laughs> Can I do that? Um, but, but yeah, I think it really influenced me. And there, I even have like this framed, a piece of paper from school or like the teacher goes around and asks like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I wrote an artist. Oh, interesting. And it's because your best friend's mom was an artist and you really like were inspired yeah, like, by oh, her. That's, that's an option, right? right? Like I didn't Now that's, that's all a sudden an option. And so, um, yeah, that combined with my dad, he, you know, he's not a traditional artist, but he's a builder. He's a contractor. Uh, he, he actually built all the homes that I grew up in and he, he kind of has this really broad skill set where he, his bread and butter is, you know, framing, framing homes, but he's done enough of 
the wide range of what goes into building a home because he's worked on our own homes that he can do the plumbing, he can do the electrical, he can work on blueprints and whatever. And so I grew up in this environment where I had my friend who was an artist or my friend's mom who was an artist. And then my house was like full of blueprint plans. And I just remember all of these tools that you'd use on a drafting table and seeing drawings turn into physical environments that I was living in was very transformative for me uh, at a very young age. In what way? It showed me what was possible. It showed me that you can have an idea and turn it into, like you can create things, I guess. And, and so it sparked a lot of creativity from a young age. And to go back to like the startups that I did when I was younger, I started airbrushing when I was like 14, got into high school, just at home. And I started airbrushing t-shirts and I started this little like, it was called Be Unique. And it was like, I would hand airbrush t-shirts, but I was just fascinated about creating things, about having an idea and bringing it to life. That's really cool that you're able to look back and kind of see that that's maybe where, where you got the idea to create something is from like your dad and having this artist, best friend's mom and, and all these things. That's kind of why I ask about everyone's childhood is I think it just plays so much into who we become. Oh, it's very formulative. And I think it just opens up what you think is possible. And, and I think that's really what it did for me. Like, I was like, oh, I can create things. <laughs> I'm going to do that. <laughs> that's right. Like, that's, that's really fun. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it definitely. And I mean, I remember it, it was just kind of like a pattern in, in all of my life. Like, I'd go to family reunions and, and I had like this gang of cousins. And they're all like a little younger than me. And I just remember like we would spend the whole weekend or the whole week like building stuff and building bike jumps or building forts or whatever it was. And I just like wanted to spend my time thinking about what we should create and then making it happen. That's awesome. I like making forts. Those are fun. Yeah, I, I think I think they're making a comeback on TikTok, like adult. Really? Yeah, adult, adult forts. Living forts. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. So what happened after college? What were some of your first jobs? Well, I mean, my first after college, my first job was actually in the startup space. So my my degree in college was pretty interesting. It was called a multimedia degree. And it allowed me to take classes that spanned uh, figure painting, figure drawing, through I did web web development classes, I did uh, music making classes, I I did three D animation classes. I got this like really broad, artistic yet digital based education, and you know I think that that was inspired by my dad and like his broad understanding of building homes. Like I wasn't going into building homes, but I was going into building experiences, and and I wanted to understand like all the facets that could go into it. Like maybe I wasn't as interested in specializing in any one thing. I wanted to understand the, the complete assembly line. I wanted to be very self-reliant. And so right, at, right out of school, uh, I, I, during school, I'd done an internship with a nonprofit, met the founder there and right out of school, he ended up starting a startup and invited me to join on as co-founder. Um, he was he just finished his MBA. So he was the, the business mind and I was coming on as kind of the, the product mind. And it was, you know, in hindsight, like a pretty funny idea, I guess. Like there was no business model. It's basically an action sports video site. This is before YouTube was a big thing, but we would corral in every action sport, organize it by filmer, athlete, brand, and you know, you, we, we had deals with Nike. We had, we had some TVs set up and like zoomies where they could program based on products they were trying to sell, but the business model was not really fully fledged. And we had like no idea what we were doing. What was it called? It was called Ishbul. Uh -huh. Okay. <laughs> yeah. This is back in 2012. You know, it was, it was a field that we were passionate about, which you know, because there was no business model it was pretty, it was required. Right. And it, and it got us to work on this for like two years and we learned so much. I, I learned how to code in this experience. We actually convinced a, an amazing engineer to join us. Who's now like leading uh, engineering teams at Amazon. 
and I learned a ton from him. And uh, yeah, we ended up folding it, but like we all took that experience and went our separate ways in, in, in amazing ways. But following that, I went to Silicon Valley. So I moved back up north, back closer to home and jumped into the startup. So you did that for two years, just that you did Ishbol for two years and you guys were like, okay, this business model actually isn't working. We should shut this down. Was that a really tough decision? Or do you think at the time it was like, eh, it's our first gig. Let's just move on from it. To get a company off the ground, you kind of have to go all in for it to even have a chance. And by all in, it's all in in terms of effort, but it's all in in terms of like aligning who you are, like your identity, the majority of your mental space towards this, this product or this project for an extended period of time. That's the only way it's going to even have a chance. And doing that, like the chances are low that it's going to succeed. So that's why it's a risky thing, and, but you, you become emotionally attached to it and it's painful to end it. Like we weren't even making money. Like we raised a small amount of funding and I was hustling, like designing websites on the side just to make ends meet, like moved up to Truckee, had like $300 a month rent just to get by. But that's like the drive. Like I loved that at the same time. It was super hard, um, but I, but I loved it. And yeah, you like, you finally, you like hold on for months and months and months, but you know, it's not working and you're just like, all right, it's done. It's traumatic. Yeah. You're like, but maybe like we can do this. There's maybe a last minute pivot. Yeah. You want to hold on a little bit. But I, I think that that experience, like that feeling, the pain that you get from that is really important for discerning ideas and, and discerning how to spend your time. Like I think about that a lot today, simplicity and really looking at there's a lot of ways to spend money. There's a lot of ways to spend your time. There's very few ways to actually make that, to, to make that ROI, to actually get return on that time or money. You know, the first endeavor people take, you don't really have that lens. Like you, you hear it, you hear the concepts, you may understand that. But when you feel the pain of chasing after shiny objects and running out of money and eventually have to shut something down, you kind of have these you kind of build walls and like you start to understand, you can see patterns and, and you can really pressure test ideas. It's so it's a, it's a blessing for sure. Yeah. I mean, I think that's like the positive outcome. I think, did was there any time where you really struggled with, I want to start another business, but I don't want to fail again. Like, did you ever feel like that? Like afraid to start again because you didn't want to have the same type of outcome or Oh, that's a good question. Maybe in the short term, like I, I needed definitely some space and I wanted to have a little bit more stability for a period of time. Working for a startup for years, it's, I wanted to make some money. I wanted to have the feeling of six o'clock comes around and you close your computer and you get to go home. You know, like I was going home, but like in my head, I was still, you're like living you're still living in the company space at all times and you're a founder. And so I needed a, I needed a breather, but it wasn't due to fear or trauma from, the, from like theory, fear of failure. It was, it was just like, I need to, I need to make money. I need to learn. And I always was planning on starting something again. Yeah. It's funny how you said that you want to like work for someone else so that you can have a break after five or six o'clock and just like not have to think about work. Whereas I think a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs who haven't built a business before think that, oh, I'm stuck in this nine to five. I can't wait to have my own business where I have flexibility and freedom. And it's like, well, actually, do you, how much freedom do you really have? Because you actually never have your business off your mind when you're running your own company. It's actually never ends. Like you don't go home and just forget things and just talk about what, the weather. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if it's a successful startup, like people look at entrepreneurs or people who start their own company and they're like, Oh, it must be great. Like you, you kind of manage your own time. You manage your own schedule. I'm like, when it gets successful, like, no, <laughs> I work for the company, you know? I, yeah. I have control over where it goes and, and everything, but it's, it's a huge investment of time and energy. Yeah, definitely. I think a lot bigger than people anticipate. Yeah. But I would say back to your first point on working you know, a nine to five, I think it's, 
So I always encourage people who are looking to start a company to go and find a nine to five that of course you learn from, but it's not extremely like it's a, it's a job that you can master and it doesn't take a ton of like mental capacity to get the job done, to accomplish like, yes, you're going to have goals. You're going to have KPIs you need to hit. Make sure you're working somewhere where you can hit those, get yourself some financial freedom, but make sure that you have some intellectual freedom, some cognitive freedom too. And that's the perfect landing pad to start your company. Um, and that, that's how I started Mudwater as well. So. so where were you working? What were you doing where you kind of had your own little launch pad? Yeah, I mean, it, it took a little bit. So after Ishful, <laughs> I moved to Silicon Valley, uh, was working for, I worked for two different startups over the course of maybe two years. One was a Series A size company. The other was sort of like a public company with um, multiple companies under its umbrella. And, and so I got like a, a variety of perspectives within those experiences. That's indirectly when Mudwater started. That's when I, the problem that I eventually needed to solve um, really came to fruition. I was living a really healthy life, like going to work, training jujitsu after work, painting, like doing all of these things but drinking tons of caffeine. I was eating, drinking healthy otherwise, but I thought that caffeine was this performance enhancing drug. And uh, if I drink more, I'm going to do more, be better, et cetera. One thing we didn't talk about was in high school, I actually had some pretty intense episodes of depression and anxiety. Not really sure why. Still sorting all of that out. So it's more of like a, a chemical thing versus like a circumstantial type of depression? Um, who knows? There's there's probably all of the above. Like there's childhood, how you interpret childhood based on your unique perspective as a kid, ups and downs, and you you kind of build your perception of the world based off of that, right? But something about entering into high school just kind of like shifted everything for me. And it was it was a lot. And what do you mean by that? Going from being like a kid into like all of a sudden you're in this new, there's, I was like a small freshman and I had, you know, I had like a really close friend group. Once we got into high school, just kind of like spread out. Small as in like physically, you mean like you felt smaller physically? No, like a tight knit, tight knit friend group. Oh, okay. So you, when you went to high school, it was like a smaller school, you know, a smaller group of friends you're saying? No, no. When, before, before high school, I had a very tight knit friend group. When we got to high school, it seemed to be like more spread out. All of a sudden there was a lot more like campaigning for who's cool, who's not, what clique are you in? Um, that combined with starting to get into like psychedelics a little bit. I started smoking weed when I was 14, had no idea what I was doing, no idea how to integrate and had a pretty uh, challenging experience that maybe sort of kickstarted this depression in a way. Um, depression's an interesting word. I, I think it was, I do describe it more as like, I was just a, all of a sudden like awake and aware to more than I could handle all at once. Like the questions that I was asking my parents or myself around like, why are we here? Like I felt extremely uncomfortable with reality and just the those like deep philosophical questions like I would just like sit around and think about all night and I was just so confused why how everybody was just living life like enjoying it without talking about like what started like what's the purpose here like what are we doing and you think that comes from smoking weed at 14 at 14 my friends and I you know we'd been smoking weed here and there but I don't think we really knew that what getting high meant and 420 comes around, we're going into high school. And me, someone who loves to build things, I decide to build like this 14 foot tall bong out of two liter soda bottles. And I'm at my friend's house and literally had to climb up onto the roof to smoke. <laughs> and and I, we just finally got high for the first time, or I did. And his, his sister came in, came home early, an older sister freaked out told the parents and we all like got kicked out and I'm like in another dimension and had no like I didn't have any of the the framework to kind of navigate what was going on I you know never experienced the mind-altering 
substance. And there's a lot of just like, what did I fry my brain? Like dare kind of things coming up. Right. It just, it's like a, a, that's like a pretty crazy trip, right? It was, Is that it was a full on psychedelic trip. Couldn't tell my parents because I was going to get in trouble. Like, you know, I just felt extremely isolated. And then I look around me and I'm just with like a bunch of 14 year old kids who are kind of like laughing and making fun of each other or whatever, you know? So it just was a very internal exploration and all like, I just felt very alone. I felt very alone in these new, like this whole new uh, area within my mind that I was started to explore. And, you know, I said like depression because it felt scary. I felt anxious. I felt I felt really isolated. Like I felt like I was, something was wrong with me maybe or something like that. And, you know, fast forward, now I'm working in, in Silicon Valley. You know, I'm living an ambitious life that is bringing about stress and I'm fueling that with tons of caffeine and I'm not sleeping well. And I started to kind of like <laughs> freak out a little bit. Like I was, I was like, is something wrong with me? Like I can't handle this stress, like what's going on? And I had a commute that was from Santa Cruz over to Mountain View. So it was an hour long commute. And I started listening to podcasts at the time. Podcasts were extremely new, like at least in my friend circle back in. Yeah. Back what in year was this? 2013, 14 ish. So I, I didn't know what podcasts were. Someone was like, you should check out, you know, Joe Rogan. It was episode. And, and I put on this episode is episode 127. So if you know anything about his podcast, he's got thousands of episodes now. And it was an episode with Aubrey Marcus, who's also a podcaster now. And he was talking about his first ayahuasca experience. And more than just like his psychedelic experience there, they were, they were talking a lot about these questions that I had sort of like suppressed because I didn't have anyone to communicate them through around existential, you know, these existential questions. And I was like, whoa, there are other people out there that are exploring these things. Not only that, there's, you know, substances that support that exploration. And, and they're going to like foreign and countries and <laughs> yeah, going to paying money. To that sounds go fun. Yeah. So it was an interesting thing because I was, it was just like the right time, right place. And it just hit me really hard. And I was hooked um, on, you know, or I was both hooked, but I was also comforted knowing that like oh I can actually like not just keep this all these questions that I have and push it aside I can actually like go in and explore that and I ended up taking a leave of absence from work um, I got invited to do an art residency I was painting as well um, while working and got invited to go to India to work on a, an art show in Bombay and in Goa and so I, I got to live at this place on the beach and um, had a studio and, and supplies all covered and yeah, worked there for six months and was sort of like ripped out of hustle culture, sleep when you're dead grind that I had been living in. And um, maybe on a deeper level, I was, I was just removed from all the cultural prescriptions as well of like, you grow up, this is what your parents say is right or wrong or religion or your teachers or even your friends. And there was just like a new way of being, a new way of living. You know, they didn't, people weren't drinking tons of coffee over there, for example, different music, different clothing, like different priorities, really. And it allowed me to, empowered me to think differently about how I was going to pursue life when I came home. And how would you do that? Because it's such a different culture. So what were you thinking would be different? But what changes were you hoping to make when you got home? Uh, well, I would... It wasn't like making change for the sake of change. It was all of a sudden having the ability to step back and look at what I was doing and question whether that was something that I was doing because I wanted to do it or whether that was just sort of a following the lead or this is what you know everybody started doing when they started working in Silicon Valley. You start drinking coffee and then you start stressing out at work and that's normal and this and that. I was just like, everything I did, I was like, what, how does this feel? How does this sit with me? And maybe I'll do that or maybe I won't. Maybe I'll, I'll zig where other people zag if that feels good too. And started marching to the beat of my own drum a lot more. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. 
Okendo is the new standard in customer reviews, and they want to make it simple and easy for you to collect user-generated content to use for your Shopify site. Retailers that use Okendo have seen an 81% increase in conversion rate when customers interact with reviews and UGC on their site. With Okendo, you can showcase UGC and reviews on your e-commerce site to build trust with your customer base and compel buying action. Okendo works with some of Shopify's fastest growing brands like Skims, Carbon38, Byte, Magic Spoon, so many more. So if you'd like to join these high growth brands, head on over to go.okendo.io slash stairway to CEO to book a demo and take advantage of getting 30 days free on Okendo. Thank you so much to our amazing sponsors. I hope you're able to take advantage of these exclusive deals designed just for you. Now let's get back to the show. How did you come up with the idea for Mudwater? Like, what was that aha moment like? Yeah, so I moved down to LA when I got home from this trip and wasn't drinking any any coffee, as I said, sort of starting to march to the beat of my own drum, trying to find that beat. I really loved ritual, though. I was I was meditating at the time. I was doing breath work, and I was really interested in how I opened and closed my day. Um, as a means to creating consistent creativity and flow state. And, and so I started looking at like, what do I do in those opening hours of the morning? You know, previously it was like, wake up, brew a big, strong cup of bulletproof coffee, get cracked out and continue this cycle. And I started looking at my mug as maybe I can make something that is more than just a vessel for caffeine. You know, I, I have things that I like to do. I, I think there, there are ingredients out there that could benefit that anything from focus to energy to immune support to physical support or cardio whatever it might be and I started researching and listening to certain podcasts and hearing about different ingredients and just adding them to a a mason jar and going about my day there was no business anything built into this I was I was focused on building a tech company. I wanted to build like a B2B SaaS web application, something like that. That's like where a lot of my focus was. And I don't spend time in the kitchen. I didn't spend time in the kitchen then, still really don't anymore. And so it was kind of interesting because I would just, I thought this was like my problem. I couldn't handle caffeine. So I solved this problem for myself and I felt great. And so the real aha moment didn't come until other people started to ask me what I was drinking. Um, that might've happened like a couple months later. Cause I would bring all of these ingredients with me to like burning man or, but I started working in an office again, maybe six months after started starting drinking this and people would be like, what, what is that? And I would, yeah, I'd be like, I don't coffee made me feel extremely anxious. So I stopped drinking that. And I found something that not only reduced that anxiety, but like made me feel and perform way better. And they're like, Oh my God, like coffee makes me feel anxious too. Um, the person sitting next to me was literally on a caffeine cleanse where they're eating this gum. And like every day it got like lower and lower doses because he's like, I just can't quit. I'm like, Whoa, like there's actually a lot of people out here that struggle with how they find energy. But keep in mind, I think there's been a lot of progress here, but like, this is 2018, 2000, yeah, 18, potentially a really big cultural shifting opportunity where the majority of the population drinks tons of caffeine. As I started to understand why maybe I couldn't tolerate caffeine, I, I learned about the, the CYP1A2 gene, which determines your metabolism of caffeine. So there's a, the majority of the population are actually slow metabolizers of caffeine. What does that mean? Wait, I'm confused. Yeah, there's a, there's a gene called the CYP1A2 gene that determines how fast do you metabolize caffeine? Interesting. How do you know how fast do you metabolize it? Like, how do you take this test? Uh, well, you could take a 23andMe test and it can tell you if you're a slower, fast metabolizer of it. Really? Well, does this just mean like, do you have a slower, fast metabolism in general? Or could you have like a fast, met- just caffeine specifically could be different than how you metabolize other foods? Sure. I don't know if there's correlation there, but it, this test will tell you specifically your metabolism for caffeine. Um, maybe there's fast metabolizers for everything, but according to the, the research, the majority of the population are still metabolizers of caffeine. 
low, you're saying slow, slow, slow yes. metabolizers. The majority of people, like what percentage do you know? There's some studies that show like 60%. I mean, it depends on the sample size that they take. I read one study that was 70%, but yeah. And I, I think that what's interesting is that caffeine is a drug, right? Like, but people don't really look at coffee as being a drug, but the the active ingredient in coffee is, is kind of like the equivalent of taking like a caffeine pill, right? Like a hundred milligram caffeine pill that you can buy at CVS, drop that in, in hot water. And it's, it's like the equivalent of a vessel for drug. Um, it's disguised as a drink with, and most drugs, they have a dosage recommended, but with caffeine, it's like, you don't really know how much you're drinking, right? Like you don't, it's not listed at on your Starbucks coffee. Some energy drinks are starting to list it now in the UK, they actually require it. But in the United States, there's not really any regulation on caffeine unless it's sold as a pill, even though you can buy an energy drink with 500 milligrams in it. That's crazy, right? Yeah. I mean, the amount of milligrams you can get in caffeine drinks is pretty scary. You know, it's definitely not healthy at all. And yeah, there's a lot of caffeine gives you a headache if you stop. Like I'm, I'm, I'm a very avid coffee drinker. I, I love the taste and obviously the caffeine, I'm a fire sign. So I feel like I like the extra fire, but I think that it definitely gives me a headache if I stop drinking for a day, which is pretty scary, right? Because there's definitely your body telling you that you need something that you're trying to not have. Yeah, the, the American Psychiatric Association actually deems caffeine withdrawal as a mental health disorder. It's like an official, official declaration, yeah. So it's, it's intense and it's intense for most people, for sure. And, and I'm not here to say caffeine is bad. Uh, Mudwater has some caffeine in it. It's more of like this blind, blind consumption of caffeine is what wasn't working for me. And I think that our company is built on the hypothesis that it's, that's true for a lot of people. Too much caffeine, just like too much of any drug can make something that is potentially helpful all of a sudden harmful. And for me, it's like, I want to be creative, like caffeine high amounts of caffeine sometimes, like if I'm on a road trip trying to drive through the middle of the night, extremely helpful, I, I kind of need that. But for trying to paint something or trying to make abstract connections between thoughts to kind of come up with a solution or an art piece, being stressed out or having any sort of fight or flight um, going on inside is not conducive to creative thought for me. Do you think that's like for most people? Do you think that could be why I'm not feeling creative? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, you know, well, like, well, think about that... it. Um, fight or flight, actually, uh, it, think about like lantern versus spotlight consciousness. So in fight or flight, you kind of go to spotlight consciousness. You want to be, look at the world, find the patterns, stay safe. Lantern consciousness is a little bit more broad. You have to kind of be safe. You have to feel safe to kind of have that broad perspective. If you're getting chased by a tiger, your mind is going to be focused to trying to get you out of that situation, whether it's you're fighting a tiger or you're finding some escape route. But when you're feeling safe, you're able to kind of explore like, oh, can I walk down that path? Whether that path is a physical path to walk down or it's, it's like maybe a new venture that you want to start or a new idea you want to explore, something that might be a little risky. If you feel safe, you might be okay to do that. And so, yeah, creativity goes hand in hand with monitoring your stress levels. That's interesting. The experience too of drinking mud water, I feel like, well, right here, I've got the, the rest. And this is your new, newest kind of combo, right? I mean, there's like turkey tail, which hopefully they didn't cut off any turkey tails in the process. Rishi, <laughs> it is vegan, good to know. Valerian root, passion flower, turmeric, cinnamon. It tastes really good. The one thing I found that was interesting, and that there's a lot of drinks modern that like you know, do this, where you just put, I guess, the tablespoon of what's in here, which is like a what do you call this? Like powder? just in the drink powder. Yes, the powder. <laughs> yeah, I know powder. And it's so there's still kind of, there's like kind of some things, even if you mix it up, which you have this awesome, you know, kind of branded frother, yeah, frother, frother. You'll have the better, more glamorous words. I'll yeah. just choose whatever yeah, words come to take mind. Take a stab. Yeah. <laughs> this frother, though, it's great. 
I just don't know how to use it yet. So when I use it, it I made a huge mess on my kitchen counter. We you have know, instructions, like, but I'm also not an instruction follower. So I get it. I'm not. Yeah, I I probably threw them away. Yeah, I didn't read it. So obviously I decorated the counter with all of the uh, the drink for a little bit, but realize that lightly pressing the go button on the frother so that it ching, 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 you know, not like full blast mode for too long. It does the trick. Tilting it to the side also. Oh, that's another trick, huh? Yeah, Tilting yes. it to the side? Yep. What, the whole cup? Nope, but the just frother? the frother. So it's not completely down straight in the cup mm -hmm. like I had it. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Good to know. Tips and tricks. But yeah, so the experience, obviously, as a coffee drinker, it's very different because you have like some of the powder some kind of still in there. Even yeah. Grit, yeah. And it tastes amazing. It's really, really tasteful. And I used actually the coconut MTC. MCT stuff. creamer, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That was really good. So the creamer is wonderful and tastes great. But again, it's kind of funny. Kind of, I'm almost wondering, like, can I put this in a coffee filter? You know, like, can I put it in a filter just so there's no more like powder? No. So like the thing is, is you're not necessarily like brewing the ingredients like you are, you're brewing coffee beans. You're actually ingesting the ingredients. You know, you're, you're ingesting the cacao, you're ingesting the mushrooms. But yeah, it, it is some something to get used to. You know, we don't have any binders or fillers in there by choice. Like I'm drinking this also. I'm a customer just like anyone else. And uh, I didn't want that in there, but I do understand. Like a tea bag or something. Yeah. Yeah. Like a tea bag. It wouldn't quite work. Um, right. We've tried I mean, it. It makes but... sense now that you say it. It's like, you're these are healthy things. You're supposed to just yeah. ingest it. Like I get it. But yeah, it's um, not, but it's it's a, not for everyone for sure. Yeah. I like it. I can adjust. I'm just saying it's a unique experience to those listening that haven't tried mud water and should, this is what you can expect and you should try it out and see, you know, how you like it. Yeah. I like how you guys have, you guys have a fun kind of copywriter or whoever wrote this. I had too much to dream last night, <laughs> said no one ever. That's really funny. You guys have some. Yeah. Um, so the, the copy is, a cool story I from so the beginning back to like when did how did mud water, mud water get started you know I, I started to notice that people were very interested in evolving their relationship to how they found energy and so I was like I'm just going to bring this to the market like I didn't really have any investment I didn't have any money I still had to work full-time but I just started making the product in my kitchen and I'd go to work the next day and come home and I would have friends bottle it up and put it into boxes with labels on them and they give me these kind of like santa claus bags and i drive to the post office take them there go back to work and kind of do the same thing over and over and i was like doing everything i was writing the copy i was taking the photos i was doing the digital product uh i was i loved it like i was feeling the burn and doing doing it all from start to finish in a very similar way that like maybe my dad was when he was building our homes growing up um, it felt like a, a very, uh, it felt artistic to me. And as we've scaled though, uh, obviously can't do it all. And I, I started to meet amazing people who like really got what we we're doing. And our copywriter is actually a close friend of mine from Santa Cruz who has known me since, you know, the early days. And I've pretty much just passed that baton off and he wrote all the copy on that tin. And we just speak the same language. And so at this point, I don't even review any of his copy. I can just like, you you know how to speak mud better than me now. And it's a, it's been an amazing journey going from kind of the solo entrepreneur to the, you know, I don't see myself as completely a coach. Um, I'm very much like a player coach still. Like I still get in, have fun on, on some design and some content, but uh, it's been a, a huge yeah, a huge opportunity for personal growth in a lot of ways. Yeah, to kind of shift from in your role as, as the team grows, which I definitely want to get to, but I'd love to kind of dive in back in 2018, you were just starting out. So can you kind of give us like a summary year by year of, you know, what the growth looked like and what were some of the biggest things that happened in those years that really moved the needle from a growth perspective? Yeah. So when I, when I first started, I... <laughs> Now that we've already talked about psychedelics a little bit, I'll, I'll give the, the honest founder story. I'd been drinking this for a while. I'd kind of been mulling it over in my head of like, there's a huge opportunity here to shift culture. Um, I ended up putting some psilocybin in this drink that I was, I was making for myself with a friend. What's and, that? 
psilocybin is magic mushrooms. For those of us tuning in that don't know these uh, words. Yeah, um, aka a good time. And the next day I, I woke up and I sort of had the, I <laughs> like it's going to sound corny, but I, I literally had like the vision for the brand in my head. Like, and it was a Saturday. I grabbed my computer. I designed the brand. I designed the website. I ordered packaging on Vistaprint. I ordered basically just more ingredients from Amazon than I'd currently been ordering for myself. So like the same everything, just times 10 and ordered some jars on Amazon. It was just like super scrappy. And I was just like, I'm just going to put this online and see what happens. And I put out an Instagram post that said, I'm not mad at coffee. I'm just disappointed. So I made something better. And it just drew the line in the sand of, you know, if you've ever experienced any of that anxiety from coffee, <laughs> then you resonate. Like if you paid attention, you're like, oh, I've kind of felt that. And then people started buying the product. And um, it was just, again, in my home kitchen, we eventually moved to a commercial kitchen. And within the first seven months, I was selling 150,000 a month in products in the most scrappy way that you could ever imagine. But how did you get all the traffic? How did you even get it out there? So those first Instagram posts started to get some organic traffic. Every order that I shipped out had a little note in it, not a handwritten note, but you know, back to the copywriting, it was kind of this cheeky note about why this product existed. And then there's a sticker that said, fuck your coffee. And people just started sharing the shit out of it. And, and so there was this organic virality to it. And then I started to boost posts and learn about Facebook advertising. And, you know, the customer acquisition cost was extremely low. And I was just like, okay, I can open up this credit card, buy some inventory, pay for some ads, then the customers would pay it back. And then I'd continue on and it kept growing and growing and growing. That's amazing. And so that was year one. So yeah, year one. So 2019. 2018, about eight month, months after launch, you know, we were hitting those 150K a month revenue numbers and I was able to raise around a million dollars. Prior to that raise was one of the most important inflection points of, of my life probably, but for sure, Mudwater's life. I got to this point where I was working full-time, didn't have enough time to keep up with orders, but I also didn't have the money to uh, quit my job and focus on Mudwater full-time. When you have a growing business, it requires a lot of capital because you have to pay for inventory ahead of time and you have to pay for advertising ahead of time. There's payback periods and everything. And I had an advisor at the time who I was, he was more of my therapist throughout this whole experience of launching where it was just like exciting, but it difficult. And I called him and I was, I was, I think crying a little bit because I was just like, I don't know what to do right now. Like I'm working extremely hard. I'm working until 2 a.m. every night making the product, going to work, I have a full-time job. And he was just like, hey man, like I've read the testimonials. I see what you're doing. I'm gonna write you a check for 25K. And if you don't accept it, I'm gonna not help you anymore. But if you do accept it, you're quitting your job tomorrow and we're gonna go make this thing. And I didn't even respond really. I was just like, what? Cause I knew he didn't have, he wasn't like rich. Like he was a friend of mine. Um, this was like money that he was gonna use in buying a house. And he, all of a sudden the money was wired and we went out and did that. I brought him on as co-founder and COO and we went out and closed a million dollars in 2018. We ended 2018 with, I think it was just like 500K in revenue. Um, did he there. say, I'd give you 25K if you make me a co-founder or were you just like, you're so nice. I want to make you a co-founder. Like, how does that work? I assume you talked about it before. It was an investment. Yeah. So, you know, we ended up raising on a safe note. So he just got in on that same, those same terms. Yeah. And he already had advisor equity at the time, but yeah, there was, there was no prearranged agreements on his role in the company, but, and we ended up closing that year uh, around 500 K in revenue. Uh, so that was like a half year, first year. Then we, in 2019, we grew to, I think it was 3.4 million in revenue, still extremely scrappy small team. One of the biggest learnings in that first year was getting a co-packer is not as easy as you might think. We have a product that goes into a tin that, as you can see, and a lot of co-packers, they just want to pack, especially for small clients. Like we were at that time, 
they want to pack in what's familiar to them. And that for the most part, that's bags. They have like air seal bags. And so every co-packer is like, we're not going to do it. Uh, this is going to require special machinery, blah, blah, blah. Like you, you don't have enough inventory to make it worth our while. And so it took us 12 months until we had a co-packer. And so that whole time I was going to the commercial kitchen three times a week, mixing up the product for six to eight hours each run while managing digital products, you know, growing the business, scaling from 500,000 in 2018 to 3.4 million in 2019. But then once we got a co-packer, then it was just like this, then it was on, like, it felt like we actually could start building the company and that's when scale really started to happen. And so 2020, we did a 16.7 million revenue that year. And then 21, we did close to 50 million in 2021. And yeah, we're, we're scaling up where we'll be doing some pretty sizable numbers in the next couple of years. That's a big jump, right? I mean, six, you said 16.7 million in 2020. Yeah, we got a co-packer and it was just like, okay, now we can actually work. (laughs) (laughs) We can actually build the brand. You weren't in the kitchen, uh, packing all these, uh, tins up yourself. It was extremely taxing. Like you're going in there driving hundreds of pounds of powder the people at the commercial kitchen absolutely hated us because they were trying to make sandwiches and we were in there with like respirators on, like with cacao powder flying around in the air. And uh, they were really happy when we got a co-packer as well. Yeah. They're like, finally, those guys are out of here. Wow. Was it you and your co-founder just like doing the co-packing yourself? Yeah, it was, it was me mainly with a couple of uh, fulfillment employees that I kind of trained up. But it was like such a, a hard job that I didn't really trust with a lot of people because it was, it would just, I, I knew all the steps. And so it was just like, I didn't, I didn't feel good about giving that to anyone. Like it literally took three hours to clean up the mess after every single mixing session. Cause powder, powder was just like everywhere in the kitchen. It was insane. Yeah. So extremely inefficient. And I didn't think anything of it. Cause I was like, oh, we'll just get a co-packer. But it was like, oh, we'll get one next month and something would happen and they couldn't fill in tins or couldn't source cacao. And so it took a long time. Yeah. And so then in 2020, obviously with the pandemic, I mean, what did growth look like for 2020? Obviously it was a huge year for you guys, but what do you think were some of the biggest things that moved the needle for the business in that year? 2020 was a pretty big year for a lot of e-commerce businesses, especially in the wellness space. But outside of the external pandemic drivers, we started to invest a lot in brand at that time. I started to make, instead of just focusing on interesting copy, I started, we started to make some good content pieces. So I created a founder story video uh, with someone who, who now is our head of film and really to, like told the story behind the brand and gave it a why and kind of a authentic feeling. Um, it felt like this like under the kimono feel of, of who the company is and, and why it exists. And that really resonated. So that combined with really figuring out how to make a, a great purchase funnel with, with a subscription model that started to retain customers. You, once you're doing that, you're starting to compile both revenue, but you're also making evangelists. And so, yeah, we just, we started to invest in, the the entire funnel versus before when it was just like me and my co-founder um we were just trying to kind of grow acquisitions right just see what you could do with what you had (laughs) and so you've also fundraised recently closed i think a series a what have been some of the challenges that you faced in fundraising and what advice do you have for entrepreneurs looking to raise for their brand Hmm. yeah so i've raised four rounds to date Uh, through this business. Early on, I think people have a lot of fear with investors. They're like, I got to find the right one or, you know, I don't know if I want to do it, whatever. I I think it's not as scary if you do it the right way. There's um, a safe note is a really good option for for fundraising in in the early rounds. Uh, When you start to get into price rounds, then it really does matter. Um, And you have sort of terms and you're giving over control and potentially a board seat, that's when you really want to be careful about who you're bringing in to the company. 
we've had amazing experiences with investors so far, um, to be honest. And I think a lot of that comes down to it's a, it's a two way street. So yes, we've been grateful to work with awesome investors, but I also do a lot of work to provide them a lot of information. I've been sending out monthly investor updates since I've been putting them together really since before I even had investors. And the reason is, is I don't view them as information for investors. I view them as like a journal entry for our company. So once a month, I'll sit down and sort of write like what is happening, what is working, what is not working, what are the the top KPIs? I've been tracking those since before I had any employees. Like after month, after week two, I was tracking every single KPI that's important in the business. And I think that was a really important thing because you start to have it's like what gets measured matters. You start to have this pulse on what is working and you start to see, you see progress. And so I started sharing that with investors from our first round and, and onward. And I think it's really helped foster that relationship and minimize a lot of the downside that happens. Cause I, I think the downside that can happen with investor relationships is, you know, they feel like you're taking advantage of them. They feel like they don't have enough information and they might try to take control or, or whatever it might be. And so I've always just been transparent and been very open but as a means for my own growth and, and for the company's benefit too. Yeah. I think there's a little bit, and you tell me a little bit of like separation of your identity when you're sending out those reports, right? Cause if there's, if there's been like a down month or whatever, you have to like separate yourself from the company. And just like you said, you're doing it for yourself. You're doing it for them. And it's not a reflection of you as a person. It's a business, you know, kind of, you're just tracking the progress of the business and sharing that information. I think what happens is that it gets with some founders and entrepreneurs, it gets a little tied to them emotionally. And then they're afraid to, you know, talk about certain things or they kind of don't send the investor update that month. <laughs> you know, I think there can be a little bit of insecurity. Yeah. I mean, sending the investor update when things are going well has a lot, has a different feeling than when things are going poorly for sure it's it's healthy to do it either way and i think it also is is a good practice cuz when things are when the numbers aren't great it doesn't mean that the business still isn't great like it's all about what is the narrative there like what what are you learning what are you going to be applying towards the next month simply sharing numbers is not what i do i weave in a narrative around what is going on um what we're doing about it and that's an amazing practice that i think every founder should be should be doing whether they're send whether they have investors or not. Yeah, kind of saying this is what happened last month and this is what we're going to do about it next yeah, month. Yeah, I mean, um, journaling as an individual practice, if you're not a founder, is is extremely transformative for people who are just looking to get better at life, at living, at being a human. And the same thing is true for a business, and for for same for the same reasons. What framework do you use for journaling when you say, if you want to improve your life, you should be journaling? What do you mean? Just what do you write down? Yeah. Yeah. I start my journal. I, I kind of create this, uh, I create a split down the middle and I have gratitude. So I write three, three things I'm grateful for. I kind of write my top five things that I'm trying to accomplish that day. And then I more or less have a free flow of reflection of what went on the previous day. Um, and then what I'm thinking about, what I'm feeling for the upcoming day. But uh, there, there is sort of an underlying framework of like, what am I excited about? Like, what is challenging for me right now? <laughs> and then there's kind of like what I'm going to be doing about both of those things. So you do this every morning? Yeah. You have a certain time that you do this in the morning? Well, I just had a kid, so my timing Congrats. has been a little all over the place. How yeah, old is your six, kid? Six weeks. Whoa, you really yeah. just had a kid, boy or girl? Boy, his boy. name is Lion. Lion. He's doing great. So I'm, uh, yeah, for, for years I had, you know, wake up at seven, go on a, on a run, come back home, breathwork meditation journal was like my thing. Um, now it's kind of at some point in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Definitely can relate. I have a one-year-old, so <laughs> mm -hmm. it gets better. You'll get, be able to sleep through the night one day soon, I'm sure. Oh, wow. 
<laughs> I guess you're not sleeping through the night yet, huh? <laughs> try to try to hit the two month mark. If you can do it in like two months, you'll be, I think, good. He's Hopefully. he's uh, he's getting better and better. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Because you're six weeks, so like eight weeks to ten weeks is like prime time. I feel like get in there, get him to sleep the whole night, and you'll be solid. We got him on. We got him on a schedule. He's fighting it a little bit, but he'll get there. But then you'll still, even if you sleep through the night, you'll still be the in the five a.m. club. It's like unavoidable. I feel like, and I don't know when it ends. You tell me. But, yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. But you'll get back into a routine. But that's awesome. So this is super helpful, interesting framework that you have for you know waking up in the morning and kind of starting your day in a healthy way. One last question before we wrap up, maybe two last questions. I noticed online there was like an article around micro dosing at work, and I'm curious. What does that mean? What your employees are, what does that mean? You and you allow micro dosing at work. What does that mean? Yeah. So our, our company's why is much bigger than a coffee alternative or a product that helps you sleep. It's, it's around saving, protecting the mind, like in a similar way that maybe Patagonia, their mission is to save the planet, but they make, you know, puffy jackets and clothing. We make products, but our purpose is to support the healing of the mind. And if you look around culture, we're living in a mental health epidemic. One in two individuals is expected to have a mental health disorder in their lifetime. 30% of the population is sleep deprived. It goes on and on and it's getting worse. And so, you know, and even on a deeper level, I think that figuring out mental health actually it has a, a cascade. It's kind of like the lead domino that affects pretty much everything from how we treat ourselves, how we treat each other, to the businesses we decide to start, how we treat the planet. And so it's really like the focus on the root cause of a lot of the negative things that are happening in the planet. So it's a, it's a deeply motivating thing for me. And my journey with mental health has involved plant medicine and mushrooms and psilocybin. So, you know, back to that podcast that I heard, I was deeply interested in exploring that myself, eventually did, have had a few really profound journeys with ayahuasca. And then once I started the company, I started doing some microdosing. And microdosing, when people say it, it's basically taking a sub-perceptual dose of a psychedelic. So a psychedelic could be ayahuasca, it could be mushrooms, it could be LSD. Uh, sub-perceptual just means you're not getting high. Like you're not oh my God, I'm seeing anything, like none of that. You might feel a little bit more energized. You maybe get a, a mood shift. You might feel a little bit more creative, but you're not gonna, like I, I've taken, I've been microdosing for most of my investor meetings. I've, like I've been microdosing during them. It's not a scary thing. It's not like mind altering in some extreme way. So when we say we support microdosing at work, we're essentially saying, if you want to microdose at work, go on ahead. And, and I think the, the interesting like follow-up to that is that's not abnormal. Um, companies have been encouraging drug use at work pretty much forever. Like which companies? Every one of them. Caffeine is in pretty much every office oh, that you've ever been in. Right. Caffeine is a drug. So you're saying caffeine is a drug. Also. So why not mushrooms? Yeah, we don't supply, we don't go as far as supplying drugs to anyone. But yeah, I think it's just an interesting framework that to, to start from is that, you know, people commonly take drugs. People take 90% of the population takes drugs every day in the form of caffeine. Uh, a lot of people drink alcohol. Um, most of those things are provided to people freely in offices. What I've noticed is that caffeine and alcohol, neither of them are conducive to my productivity or creativity. And microdosing is in a very extreme way. And so we, you know, if employees are interested, we provide information. There's a lot of information online on, on what microdosing is, how to do it in a safe and effective way. Um, so we work with companies like Double Blind and provide some of that information. And if anybody wants to explore even further, we, we have a stipend where if you want to do a retreat, we recently had an employee going to do an ayahuasca retreat. Uh, we cover that. Wow. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. Amazing. I'm going to have to um, 
do some more research about this microdosing and see how creative I can get because <laughs> I've been in a rut. So it'll be fun to check it out. So real quick before we wrap up, what is next for the brand? What's next for Mudwater? I know we talked about briefly kind of opening physical locations. What can we see next? And what final advice do you have for entrepreneurs tuning in? Yeah, right now I'm focused on growing the team where we're bringing on some more senior leadership. Like last year at this time, we were a very small team around like seven people. And now we're 22 and quickly growing to 30 and beyond. And we're building in like the framework, the, the foundation to grow that team. The team is going to be focused on a, a broader variety of things where in the early days, it was like Facebook, Instagram, growing online D2C. Um, now we're growing beyond that into different channels that we're advertising through, but also different channels that we're selling through. We're no longer going to be available only through our website. We're now available on Amazon and we're going to be quickly available in retailers near you. We'll be expanding international as well. We just launched in Canada and then we're going to be expanding products too. So we have a lot of products that I'm not going to touch on here that are in our, our product pipeline that I'm extremely excited about. They're different categories and, but similarly, you know, challenging the status quo around rituals that we share. And then the last thing I'll touch on is that we're opening up a flagship store here in, in Santa Monica. So we got a, a large warehouse space on Main Street um, in Santa Monica, and we're going to be opening up a cafe, but it'll also be a, a space for us to promote some of the modalities that are proven to support how people rise and rest. So things like meditation, things like breath work, hot and cold exposure. We're going to have saunas and cold plunges in a group space to do that together. And then we'll also be hosting a lot of events. We, we have our own podcast. We, we have uh, films coming out every quarter. So we'll be doing film premieres there. Yeah, so it'll be a great spot for us to connect with our community. That's amazing. Cool. Well, I'm excited to check it out. Thank you so much for joining the show. It was so fun to get a good update here and hear about all of your amazing progress. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's great questions. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.